valid line of thought which this anonymous author helped plant in my head. What do we mean by this? Now, I'm going to have quite a few points. I'm going to have seven points. That's a lot of points. We cannot deal with each of our points as extensively as it deserves. Each of these points is worthy of a lesson in and of itself. But fundamental understanding of grace has to begin with a fundamental understanding of the God of grace. And that is in Isaiah 6, in one of the passages which is so important, is Isaiah 6 describes the awesome holiness of God. As the text says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. These angelic beings, as awesome as they are, and they are awesome, because when they speak, the foundations of the temple shake. In verse 6, but they cry out, holy, holy, holy. That attribute of God, His holiness, is the only attribute of God tripled like this in Scripture. And it is done not only in the Old Testament, but it is done in the New. It's done in Isaiah 6 verse 3. It's done in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. Fundamental to God's nature is that God is a holy God. And that means God is absolutely flawless. God is without moral stain, without any darkness. God is light, as 1 John 1 verse 5 says. God is holy. God cannot even be tempted by sin. James 1 and verse 13. God is awesomely holy. Have you ever been in someone's presence and the person makes you nervous not because they have money, not because they have power, but because they're holy. There are people but I still feel that when I'm around them. If that is true for flawed people, how much more our flawless God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty.
God is utterly and awesomely holy. And we are sinners. In Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, Paul strings together a series of Old Testament quotations, the majority of them from the book of Psalms, to stress our guilt. He said in Romans 3 and verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. You notice with verse 13 that he mentioned parts of the body. Paul mentions the throat. He mentions the tongue. He mentions the lips in verse 14. He mentions the mouth in verse 15. The feet. And he says in verse 18, in summing this up from Psalm 36 verse 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. He strings together a series of passages from the Old Testament that stress the fact that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I have in my personal note, I have several other verses that state that. Ecclesiastes 7, 21, Psalm 30 verse 3. Etc. Etc. But I didn't put them on the PowerPoint. Because I don't imagine there's a same point person who questions that. You know the sinfulness of man from Scripture? You know from personal experience. Now, if anyone wants to say after this, those words don't apply to me. I'm going to ask you a few questions. There's nothing you've ever done that you would want to do over. There's nothing you've ever done that you're ashamed of. There's nothing that you've ever done that you wouldn't want everybody in this cloud. And there's nothing that you've ever said that you would be reluctant to share with everybody. And how about what you thought about? I'm not talking about what passed through your mind and what you pushed aside. But I'm talking about what you dwell on. So if anyone wants to come up afterwards and say point two doesn't apply to me, I want to ask you those questions. And what happens when the awesome holiness of God comes in contact 
with our sin. The Bible says in Romans 1 verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In Psalm 7 In verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. For God to tolerate sin is contrary to His holy nature. When you hear the worst cases of child abuse, are you not moved? to anger. Doesn't holiness require a certain anger at wrongdoing? God is awesomely holy and we have sinned and fallen short of His glory. We have made the mess We have sinned, we have done wrong, but we can't fix the problem. We can't fix the problem. Paul describes the sinfulness of man and the wickedness of the world in Ephesians 2 in verses 1 through 3. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We have created the problem, but we have no solution. I do not mean to be beneath you. But let me quote to you something that I think you will all know. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty together again. We have sinned, we've done wrong, we're broken, and we can't put the pieces back together. We could put the pieces back together. The boldness preacher of Jesus to ever live was Paul. You know what Paul done? Paul had murdered Christians when Stephen was stoned. He was keeping the clothes in Acts 7 verse 58. In Acts 22 verse 20 
He was giving his consent, agreeing with them. In Acts 20.16, when others were put to death, he gave his voice against them. How many people did Paul have a part in executing? I don't know. But let me ask you this. How many sermons... How many missionary efforts would Paul have to go on to make up for one murder? You can't do it. You can't do it. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer? No. These for sin cannot atone. Thou must say, and thou alone. From the psalm, Rock of Ages. Do you understand? That's true of you. It's true. I think the biggest thing in our society, in our culture, that keeps people out there and not in here, is they do not understand their sin and their desperate need of God. And I'm afraid sometimes we don't. A friend of mine that I grew up with, I'd known in my early years. Talk to me about being back in town for a few days. He said, I went to this parade and there was a person there. Calls a person's name from our school day. He said, I know that she heard me. Because I called out a name that we used to call her in school. And she just ignored me. I said, well, if you would have said that to me, I would have ignored you too. And I chided her. The fact that as old as she was, she's still resorting to elementary school insults. you know what really bothered me about that? After I finished talking, I started thinking about that. And do you know the person who originated that insult? Trying to get heat off myself because someone told me she liked me. 
So what better way to do that than to insult her? I never said that after I was a Christian. But I thought about that. I didn't murder anybody. I didn't kill anybody. It happened when we were very young and it was never intended to get back to her. But I bet she cried many times at those words. And I was responsible for originating the whole thing. All of us have done harm to other people. Now, you may say, that's not good news yet. To appreciate the good news, we have to realize how desperately we need it. It will only be good news To the extent that we recognize our dilemma. Only as we realize how hideous sin is. Will we begin to appreciate how amazing grace is. God is utterly holy. We have sinned and we have fallen short. And we cannot fix the problem. And yet when we could not fix the problem, God's love initiates the answer. Now, the reason I read Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 a moment ago is more to set up what I'm about to read now. From Ephesians 2 in verses 4 through 7. After Ephesians 2 in verses 1 through 3 talks about our horrible and hopeless situation in sin in which we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that was now working in the sons of disobedience. After that, Verse 4 says, but God. This is not a logical conclusion. In the sense that we did something good or deserving of His love, this is telling us in spite of our sins and disobedience, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ in spite of our sins in spite of our foolishness God loved us now the more we appreciate how we don't deserve that, the more in all we will stand at that love. The words in verse 4, mercy, 
and love, grace in verse 5 and verse 7, and kindness in verse 7, all of those terms in that context are basically synonymous. His love, His mercy, His grace, His kindness. And He has lavished all these upon us. Look at the great steps of salvation. How many of those great steps of salvation began with man searching for God? Or did they begin with God seeking man to initiate this relationship, to bring us into a relationship with Him? God called Abram. From the land of Ur of the Chaldeans in Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12. God initiates that. God speaks to Moses at the burning bush and says, take off your sandals. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. God takes the step toward us, not vice versa. That doesn't mean the Bible doesn't call us to seek God. But we seek God in response to Him seeking Friend, if you've ever become filled with despair, if you have ever become close to taking your life, know that there is one who loves you and who follows your every movement longing for you to come to Him. God being rich in mercy because of his love with which he loved us. And God initiated the love. We took, we did not take the step toward God. God took the step toward us. And God has made the supreme manifestation of His love, of His kindness, of His mercy, of His grace. He has made the ultimate demonstration of that in Jesus Christ. In giving Christ to die for our sins. In Romans 3, beginning with verse 21, Paul wrote, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophet. And by the way, this term, righteousness or righteousness of God, is going to be used about four times in this reading. There may be multiple meanings possible for this particular term. It could be the idea of God's way of making us right with Him, of bringing us into a right relationship with Him. It could be His moral quality of righteousness, the righteousness of of God. 
And it could be a whole host of other things. But God has revealed this to us. It's been, it's been witnessed by the law and the prophets, verse 21, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there is more there than we can do justice to. One New Testament scholar had written in his time that this may be the most important paragraph ever penned in human history. Romans 3, verses 6 through 21. But the Bible tells us that God punishes sin in a way that is just and in a way that He is shown to be justifier. A way that is just in a way that also opens up the door of salvation. And one term that is used here, at least in the New American Standard, in verse 25, is the term propitiation. And that term has been written much about, and there has been much debate, what is the proper uh, interpretation, translation, what's the pop, pop, uh, proper idea of that term But I believe, and at this point saying, to state the basic idea of the term is the turning away of wrath at the offering of a gift. Now let me give you an Old Testament context for you. Genesis 25. Esau comes in tired from hunting Jacob says, he says, what's that you're cooking? I'd really like some of that. He said, I'll give it to you if you sell me your birthright. He said, what good's my birthright going to do? I'm about to die. So he saw A and drank and despised his birthright. Genesis 27 Isaac says to Esau, go out and hunt for me that savory food I love. Go out and hunt it for me and bring it to me that I may bless you. Rebecca overhears this and she concocts a plan with Jacob that Jacob is going to take a couple of goats from the flock and cover his hands with the skin of the goat and say to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, bless me. When Esau finds out what's transpired, he says, I'm going to kill Jacob. I'm going to kill Jacob. Jacob is sent away for 20 years. 20 years. When he's coming back 
fleeing from his father-in-law Laban. When he's coming back, he sends messengers ahead of him to Esau and says, your servant Jacob is coming back. And the news comes to Jacob. Esau's coming out to greet you with 400 men. Now let me ask you, if someone's last words to you were, I'm going to kill you. And then the next time you see them, they're coming out with 400 men. What are you going to think? You know what Jacob did? Jacob divides up all his animals. About 580, I think, in all. And he has one servant bring one type of animal. And they would come and present them to Esau and says, These are a present to my Lord Esau from your servant Jacob. And as Esau's experiencing these blessings of these animals, then there's another servant coming with another round of animals and saying the same thing. This is a present from my servant Jacob to my Lord Esau. And the Bible says that Jacob's hope is, in Genesis 32, verse 20, Greek translation of the Old Testament, he will be propitiated. His anger will be turned away at the gift. Now I want you to think about this. Who did wrong in Jacob did wrong. Who offers the gift? Well, obviously, the person who did wrong offers the gift. Jacob presents a gift to Esau to turn away. We had angered God by our sins. We had angered God, and as a result, of God's anger. There's nothing that we could offer that was big enough. There is nothing that we could offer that was great enough. Could my zeal forever flow? Could, could my tears forever flow? And my zeal no longer No, as we stated earlier. Nothing we could offer. God offers the gift to turn away His own anger. That is not justice. That is amazing grace. Amazing grace. And that was done for every person here. And for everyone in this community who would never come into this building. For people in our world that hold up their fists in defiance of Him. It was done for everyone. Another song. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small 
Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my heart, my all. Isaac Watts. It is amazing how God has loved us. But this grace demands response. In Acts chapter 2, when people were convinced that of Peter's message that Jesus had died and Jesus rose again, when people were convinced of this message, And their part in crucifying Jesus, this Jesus you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. They said, men and brethren, what should we do? And the answer, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And that day were added to them 3,000 souls. Now that response doesn't deserve the mercy. It doesn't deserve the grace. The grace, the mercy was demonstrated before. But shouldn't we respond in humility to the one who has done everything? When we owe him everything? Do you remember in 2 Kings 5 that Naaman was a leper? He heard there was a prophet in Israel from a maidservant of his and he sends to the king and says, Here is Naaman my servant, heal him of his leprosy. The king tears his clothes. He says, Am I God to kill and make alive? Elisha hears of the whole ordeal and says, Don't do that. Send him to me and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. When Naaman comes with his entourage to the door of Elisha, Elisha sends out a servant and says, go to the Jordan and dip seven times. And the Bible tells us that Naaman hears it and he is enraged by this. If I was just going to dip in the waters, I could have stayed back home in the waters of Syria and dipped in the waters of Abana and Farpar. If he told you to do something right, When you've done it, how much less wash and be clean. Are you carrying the burden of sin? Are you carrying a load of guilt? Listen to Him. Respond to the love that He initiates and the grace that He pours out in Christ. And there is complete forgiveness. How blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 says, it is quoted in Romans chapter 4. 
verses 7 and 8. In Psalm 51, Psalm 51 and verse 7, as David was praying in this prayer of confession after his sin with Bathsheba, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I've known some really amazing stories about people who were trapped deeply in sin. Who have been rescued and saved and forgiven. And I will be honest that I'm hesitant to say some of them right now because I'm trying to figure out who knows who. And I'm not trying to tell a story that someone would not tell, technically told. Whether your sin be murder like Paul, whether your sin be gossip and careless speaking of others, Whatever you sin, and you have sinned, you need a reset. And God, in His grace, is offering it. He offers you an opportunity for full forgiveness. If we haven't explained this well enough, please ask afterwards. Because there's nothing more important in what we're doing together than to point you to a right relationship with Him. My friend, I hope you're uttering a prayer in your heart at this time. Thanking God for how amazing His grace is that makes it possible to save sinners. If you are desperately in need of forgiveness, He can supply it. He can provide forgiveness. Do what the people on the day of Pentecost did. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for forgiveness as we stand and sing.